This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Muriel Sparks' story, The Ormolu Clock, which was published in The New Yorker in 1960. And just before Goethe closed the door, I noticed standing upon the cabinet a large ornamental clock, its case enameled rosily with miniature inset pastel paintings. Each curve and twirl in the case of this clock was overlaid with the gilded bronze alloy that is known as ormolu. The clock twinkled in the early sunlight, which slanted between the window hangings. The story was chosen by Joseph O'Neill, whose own story, The Referees, appeared in the magazine in September. His most recent novel, The Dog, was also published in September. Hi, Joe. Hi, Deborah. Now, you had your heart set on reading something by Muriel Spark for this podcast. Why is that? Well, I just sort of love Muriel Spark, and I also think that she's fallen by the wayside a tiny bit, mm-hmm. certainly by comparison to her former stature. And I also kind of knew that she had a very productive relationship with The New Yorker, and I thought, I wonder what the first story that she ever published in The New Yorker was. And it turns out to be this rather mysterious story, The Ormolu Clock, a wonderful story, which I'd never read before. So it was a great pleasure to find it and uh, read it. I was curious when you brought the story up because it was relatively far into her, her writing career. I mean, not very far, but she was 42 when it came out, and I wondered why that was the first one. So I actually went and checked, and in the old days, The New Yorker kept very good records, and there had been three stories she'd submitted before that that, that had been turned down. But not... Oh but all sort of within a year or two of the date that this one was taken. So she hadn't been trying for very long. The trajectory of her literary career is, is very interesting and mm-hmm. kind of illuminating, when, you know, with, particularly with regard to the situation of the woman writer at that time. Right. Well, the year after this story came out, The New Yorker published The Prime of Miss Jean Brody in its entirety yeah. in one issue. So that was a sort of meteoric <laughs> maybe that's why motivation for her maybe that's why no one talks about it people are still jealous about that <laughs> <laughs> publish my novel when did you start reading her you know only about five years ago mm-hmm. when i was asked to write an essay about her um, biography mm-hmm. and i suppose it was sort of guilt that made me sort of then i sort of read all her work to, to write that essay i'm not sure i read all of it but i read most of it and it's just it was just blew me away how, how mm-hmm. amazing she is and since then, I've become a, an enormous fan and kind of advocate, so far as I'm able to. She had a very interesting life and career mm-hmm. and belonged to a very interesting generation of, of women writers. I, probably the last, the last generation not to have the benefit of kind of feminist forces. Right. So she really had to find a space in which to function as a writer against all sorts of odds. And she sort of very controversially at the time walked out of a marriage and left her son. Yeah, I mean, the story is essentially Muriel Spark was married very young. She was a Scottish girl, the daughter of a factory worker. And her husband, Mr. Spark, from <laughs> whose name she took, took her to southern Rhodesia, as it was then known. They had this little baby, and then it immediately turned out that the father was and her husband was crazy. Mm-hmm. And so there she was sort of stuck in this kind of idiotic, racist society with this son. And then she did something which is almost unthinkable, I suppose, to some, um, which is in the middle of the war she left her son 
her infant son, really, in the hands of her unreliable husband and then got on a boat in the middle of the war back to London, braving the U-boats and just set up on her own and started working and was only reunited with her son after the war and then after then they had a very difficult relationship with him. But this was, I suppose it must also be remembered that um, this was obviously an extreme thing to do, but Doris Lessing did something very yeah, similar. I was thinking that. When I started reading it, I sort of conducted an, you know, my own investigation into how the writers of that age combined writing with motherhood. And by and large, they just didn't. Yeah. Because motherhood was so consuming. Now, what is it about Muriel Sparks' writing that really distinguishes it for you? Muriel Sparks' novels are short and characterized by a kind of miraculous number of characters, essentially. She can handle a very large dramatis personae in The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, for example, and The Girls of Slender Means and Memento Mori. These are all novels with many characters in them, and it all happens in the space of 140 pages, and decades are dealt with, and yet enormous kind of details of society are also offered to the reader. She has her own temporal territory, if you call it that. She can do things with time that other writers can't do. And it feels like you've read a sort of 800-page novel, even though it's only 140 pages long, and it's very difficult to do. And I think that's why, you know, writers are in awe of her, because they think, well, how, how can I do that? How, how can I have that third-person voice, which is mainly the voice she uses, mm-hmm. a sort of commanding, omniscient narrator? And do you think that this story, The Ormolu Clock, is, is typical of her work? It is in some ways typical, yeah. I mean, it's written, I think, at the peak of her powers. It's written just before Jean Brodie is published mm-hmm. and just after she's published Memento Mori, which is her first masterpiece, I suppose. She just did this thing where she was a poet until her late 30s and then apparently because she became a Roman Catholic and there's lots of Catholicism or religion in this story buried in there, she's just something clicked for her as a fiction writer and these novels poured out of her and she very quickly then became understood and you know within five years was seen to be a great writer and was a very famous writer what do you think it was that clicked well i just think it's quite difficult to write (laughs) Um, and part of the difficulty is what is the point of any utterance why does any sentence deserve to exist why why bother why not be quiet for example and i think her answer to that was that Actually, you can write because human affairs are ridiculous. Nowadays, she'd be seen as quite an unpleasant mm-hmm. sort of person, I suppose. The kind of pleasantness that's now sort of compulsory in sort of writing life, and literary life, right. wasn't really yeah. compulsory then. And you got to be a much sharper, more angular kind of person, as indeed she had to be to make space for herself artistically as a woman. There's a nastiness to her work, mm-hmm. which I think is, is a kind of honesty, it's a sort of nastiness that very few writers risk anymore because nothing is worse now than the accusation of that you're a nasty, unpleasant writer. Right. You know, people don't like it, they want you to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> so this story is set in the Austrian Alps near the Yugoslav border and it involves a, a rivalry between two neighbouring guest houses. Do you think there's anything else that people should know about it before they listen? Well, it, it's this word, Ormolu, the story's called The Ormolu Clock, and Ormolu is not a word I was familiar with. And it's actually derived from the French, Ormolu, which means ground gold. And I think it refers to, if Wikipedia is correct, mm-hmm. this kind of now abandoned process of gilding, where you would take a clock, for example, and gild it using mercury, and it would result in this extraordinary gold veneer 
on, mm-hmm. on an object. Mm-hmm. And apparently it was no longer done after 1830 because working with mercury led almost certainly to senility and brain damage in the right. workers who right. would die, you know, rarely lived past the age of 40. So the implication is the clock has to be old. It's an antique. Old and lethal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll talk some more after the reading. And now here's Joseph O'Neill reading The Ormolu Clock by Muriel Spark. The Ormolu Clock. The Hotel Stor stood side by side with the guesthouse Lublinich, separated by a narrow path that led up the mountain on the Austrian side to the Yugoslavian border. Perhaps the old place had once been a great hunting tavern. These days, though, the Hotel Stor was plainly a disappointment to its few drooping tenants. They huddled together like birds in a storm, their flesh sagged over the unscrubbed tables on the dark back veranda, which looked over Herr Stroh's untended fields. Usually, Herr Stroh sat somewhat apart in a mist of cognac, his lower chin resting on his red neck and his shirt open for air. Those visitors who had come not for the climbing but simply for the view sat and admired the mountain and were sloppily waited upon until the weekly bus should come and carry them away. If they had cars, they rarely stayed long. They departed, as a rule, within two hours of arrival, like a comic act. This much was entertainingly visible from the other side of the path at the guesthouse Lublonich. I had come to this little town because it was cheap. I was waiting for friends to come and pick me up on their way to Venice. Frau Lublonich welcomed all her guests in person. When I arrived, I was hardly aware of the honour. She seemed so merely a local woman, undefined and dumpy as she emerged from the kitchen wiping her hands on her brown apron, with her grey hair drawn back tight, her sleeves rolled up, her dingy dress, black stockings and boots. It was only gradually that her importance was permitted to dawn upon strangers. There was a Herr Lublinich, but he was of no account, even though he got all the marital courtesies. He sat punily with his drinking friends at one of the tables in front of the inn, greeting the guests as they passed in and out, and receiving as much attention as he wanted from the waitresses. When he was sick, Frau Lublinich took his meals with her own hands to a room upstairs set aside for his sickness. But she was undoubtedly the boss. She worked the hired girls 14 hours a day and they did the work cheerfully. She was never heard to complain or to give an order. It was enough that she was there. Once when a girl dropped a tray with five mugs of soup, Frau Lublinich went and fetched a cloth and submissively mopped up the mess herself like any old peasant who had suffered worse than that in her time. The maids called her Frau Chef. Frau Chef prepares special food when her husband's stomach is bad, one of them told me. Appended to the guesthouse was a butcher's shop, and this was also a Lublonich possession. A grocer's shop had been placed beside it, and on an adjacent plot of ground, all Lublonich property, a draper's shop was nearing completion. Two of her sons worked in the butcher's establishment, a third had been placed in charge of the grocers, and the youngest son, now ready to take his place, was destined for the drapers. In the garden, strangely standing on a path between the flowers for decorating the guests' tables 
and the vegetables for eating, facing the prolific orchard and overhung by the chestnut trees that provided a roof for outdoor diners, grew one useless thing, a small, well-tended palm tree. It gave an air to the place. Small as it was, this alien plant stood as high as the distant mountain peaks when seen from the perspective of the great back porch where we dined. It quietly dominated the view. Ordinarily, I breakfasted at seven, but one morning I woke at half-past five and came down from my room on the second floor to the yard to find someone to make me some coffee. Standing in the sunlight with her back to me was Frau Lublinich. She was regarding her wide kitchen garden, her fields beyond it, her outbuildings and her pigsties, where two aged women were already at work. One of the sons emerged from an outbuilding carrying several strings of long sausages. Another led a bullock with a bag tied over its head to a tree and chained it there to await the slaughterers. Frau Lublinich did not move, but continued to survey her property, her pigs, her pig women, her chestnut trees, her beanstalks, her sausages, her sons, her tall gladioli, and, as if she had eyes in the back of her head, she seemed aware, too, of the good thriving guest house behind her and the butcher's shop, the draper's shop, and the grocer's. Just as she turned to attack the day's work, I saw that she glanced at the sorry hotel straw across the path. I saw her mouth turned down at the corners with the amusement of one who has a certain foreknowledge. I saw a landowner's recognition in her little black eyes. You could tell, even before the local people told you, that Frau Lublinich had built up the whole thing from nothing by her own wits and industry. But she worked pitiably hard. She did all the cooking. She supervised the household, and, without moving hurriedly, she sped into the running of the establishment like the maniac drivers from Vienna who tore along the high road in front of her place. She scoured the huge pans herself, wielding her podgy arm round and round. Clearly she trusted none of the girls to do the job properly. She was not above sweeping the floor, feeding the pigs and serving in the butcher's shop, where she would patiently hold one after another great sausage under her customer's nose for him to smell its quality. She did not sit down, except to take her dinner in the kitchen, from her rising at dawn to her retiring at one in the morning. Why does she do it? What for? I asked this question at the café across the river, where I went in the late afternoon. It was the place where one got one's information. Yes, they said. Why? Her sons are grown up. She's got her guest house, her servants, her shops, her pigs, fields, cattle. And they said, Frau Lublinich has got far more than that. She owns all the strip of land up to the mountain. She's got three farms. She may even expand across the river and down this way to the town. Then why does she work so hard? She dresses like a peasant, they said. She scours the pots. Frau Lublinich was their favourite subject. She did not go to church. She was above church. I had hoped to see her there wearing different clothes, perhaps sitting with the chemist, the dentist and their wives in the second front row behind the Count and his family. Or perhaps 
She might have taken some less noticeable place among the congregation, but Frau Lublinich was a church unto herself, and even resembled in shape the onion-shaped spires of the churches around her. I climbed the lower slopes of the mountains, while the experts in their boots did the thing earnestly up on the sheer crags above the clouds. When it rained, they came back and reported, Tito is sending the bad weather. The maids were bored with the joke, but they obliged with smiles every time and served them up along with the interminable veal. The higher mountain reaches were beyond me except by bus. I was anxious, however, to scale the peaks of Frau Lublinich's nature. One morning, when everything was glittering madly, after a nervous stormy night, I came down early to look for coffee. I had heard voices in the yard some moments before, but by the time I appeared, they had gone indoors. I followed the voices into the dark stone kitchen and peered in the doorway. Beyond the chattering girls, I caught sight of a further doorway, which usually remained closed. Now it was open. Within it was a bedroom, reaching far back into the house. It was imperially magnificent. It was done in red and gold. I saw a canopied bed, built high, splendidly covered with a scarlet quilt. The pillows were piled up at the head, about four of them very white. The bedhead was deep dark wood, touched with gilt. A golden fringe hung from the canopy. In some ways this bed reminded me of the glowing bed by which von Eyck ennobled the portrait of Jan Arnolfini and his wife. All the rest of the Lublinich establishment was scrubbed and polished local wood, but this was a very poetic bed. The floor of the bedroom was covered with a carpet of red that was probably crimson, but that against the scarlet of the bed looked purple. On the walls on either side of the bed hung Turkish carpets whose background was an opulently dull, more ancient red, almost black, where the canopy cast its shade. I was moved by the sight. The girl, called Mitzi, was observing me as I stood in the kitchen doorway. Coffee, she said. Whose room is that? It's Frau Chef's room. She sleeps there. Now another girl, tall, lanky Goethe, with her humorous face and slightly comic answer to everything, skipped over to the bedroom door and said, We are instructed to keep the door closed. And for a moment before closing it, she drew open the door, quite wide, for me to see some more of the room. I caught sight of a tiled stove constructed of mosaic tiles that were not a local type. They were lustrous, ochre and green, resembling the tiles on the floors of Byzantine ruins. The stove looked like a temple. I saw a black lacquered cabinet inlaid with mother of pearl, and just before Goethe closed the door, I noticed, standing upon the cabinet, a large ornamental clock, its case enameled rosily with miniature inset pastel paintings. Each curve and twirl in the case of this clock was overlaid with the gilded bronze alloy that is known as ormolu. The clock twinkled in the early sunlight, which slanted between the window hangings. I went into the polished dining room, and Mitzi brought my coffee there. From the window I could see Frau Lublinich in her dark dress, her black boots and wool stockings. She was plucking a chicken over a bucket full of feathers. 
Beyond her, I could see the sulky figure of Herr Straw standing collarless, fat and unshaven, in the open door of his hotel across the path. He seemed to be meditating upon Frau Luglenich. It was that very day that the nuisance occurred. The double windows of my bedroom were directly opposite the bedroom windows of the Hotel Straw, with no more than twenty feet between, the width of the narrow path that led up to the frontier. It was a cool but sunny day. I sat in my room writing letters. I glanced out of the window. In the window, directly opposite me, stood Herr Straw, gazing blatantly upon me. I was annoyed at his interest. I pulled down the blind and switched on the light to continue my writing. I wondered if Herr Straw had seen me doing anything peculiar before I had noticed him, such as tapping my head with the end of my pen, or scratching my nose or pulling faces, any of the things one might do while writing a letter. The drawn blind in the artificial light irritated me, and suddenly I didn't see why I shouldn't write my letters by daylight without being stared at. I switched off the light and released the blind. Herr Straw had gone. I concluded that he had taken my action as a signal of disapproval, and I settled back to write. I looked up a few moments later, and this time Herr Straw was seated on a chair a little way back from the window. He was facing me squarely and holding to his eyes a pair of field glasses. I left my room and went down to complain to Frau Lublinich. "'She's gone to the market,' Goethe said. "'She'll be back in half an hour.' So I lodged my complaint with Goethe. "'I shall tell Frau Chef,' she said. Something in her manner made me ask, "'Has this ever happened before?' "'Once or twice this year,' she said. "'I'll speak to Frau Chef.' And she added, with her music-hall grimace, "'He was probably counting your eyelashes.' I returned to my room. Herr Straw still sat in position, the field glasses in his hands, resting on his knees. As soon as I came within view, he raised the glasses to his eyes. I decided to stare him out until such time as Frau Lublinich should return and take the matter in hand. For nearly an hour, I sat patiently at the window. Herr Straw rested his arms now and again, but he did not leave his seat. I could see him clearly, although I think I imagined the grin on his face, as from time to time he raised the glasses to his eyes. There was no doubt that he could see, as if it were within an inch of his face, the fury on mine. It was too late now for one of us to give in, and I kept glancing down at the entrances to the Hotel Straw, expecting to see Frau Lublinich, or perhaps one of her sons, or the yard hands, going across to deliver a protest. But no one from our side approached the straw premises. From either the front or the back of the house, I continued to stare, and Herr Straw continued to goggle through his glasses. Then he dropped them. It was as if they had been jerked out of his hand by an invisible nudge. He approached close to the window and gazed, but now he was gazing at a point above and slightly to the left of my room. After about two minutes, he turned and disappeared. Just then, Goethe knocked at my door. Frau Chef has protested, and you won't have any more trouble, she said. Did she telephone to him? No, Frau Chef doesn't use the phone. It mixes her up. Who protested, then? Frau Chef. But she hasn't been across to see him. I've been watching the house. 
No, Frau Chef doesn't visit with him. But don't worry, he knows all right that he mustn't annoy our guests. When I looked out the window again, I saw that the blind of Herr Stroh's room had been pulled down, and so it remained for the rest of my stay. Meantime, I went out to post my letters in the box opposite our hotel, across the path. The sun had come out more strongly, and Herr Stroh stood in his doorway, blinking up at the roof of the guesthouse Lublonich. He was engrossed. He did not notice me at all. I didn't want to draw his attention by following the line of his gaze, but I was curious as to what held him staring so trance-like up at our roof. On my way back from the post-box, I saw what it was. Like most of the roofs in that province, the Lublinich roof had a railed ledge running several inches above the eaves for the purpose of preventing the snow from falling in heavy thumps during the winter. On this ledge, just below an attic window, stood the gold and rose ormolu clock that I had seen in Frau Lublinich's splendid bedroom. I turned the corner just as Herr Stroh gave up his gazing. He went indoors, sullen and bent. Two carloads of people who had moved into the hotel that morning were now moving out, shifting their baggage with speed and the signs of a glad departure. I knew that his house was nearly empty. Before supper, I walked past the Hotel Stroh and down across the bridge to a café. There were no other customers in the place. The proprietor brought the harsh gin that was the local specialty over to my usual table, and I sipped it while I waited for someone to come. I did not have to wait long, for two local women came in and ordered ices, as many of them did on their way home from work in the village. Mostly they were shop assistants. They held the long spoons in their rough, knobbly hands and talked, while the owner of the café came and sat with them to exchange the news of the day. Herr Stroh has been defying Frau Lublinich, one of the women said. Not again. He's been offending her tourists. Dirty old peeping Tom. He only does it to annoy Frau Lublinich. I saw the clock on the roof. I saw Stroh is finished. He, which clock? What she bought from him last winter when he was hard up. All red and gold like an altarpiece. A beautiful clock. It was his grandfather's when things were different. Stroh is finished. She'll have his hotel. She'll have... She'll have the pants off him. He'll have to go. She'll get the place at her price. Then she'll build down to the bridge. I've always said so. Just wait and see. Next winter, she'll have the hotel, Stroh. Last winter, she had the clock. It's two years ago since she gave him the mortgage. It's only Stroh's old place that's standing in her way. She'll pull it down. The faces of the two women and the man nearly met across the café table, self-hypnotised by the central idea of their talk. The women's spoons rose to their mouths and returned to their ices, while the man clasped his hands on the table in front of him. Their voices went on like a litany. She'll expand down to the bridge, perhaps beyond the bridge. No, no, the bridge will be enough. She's not so young. Poor old Stroh. Why doesn't she expand in the other direction? Because there isn't so much trade in the other direction. The business is down here, this side of the river. Old Stroh is upset. She'll build down to the bridge. She'll pull down his place and build. Beyond the bridge. Old Stroh. His clock stuck up there for everyone to see. What does he expect, the lazy old pig? What does he expect to see with his steel glasses? The tourists? I wish him the joy of the tourists. They giggled, 
then noticed me sitting within earshot and came out of their trance. How delicately Frau Lublinich had sent her deadly message. The Ormelu clock was still there on the roof ledge when I returned. It was thus she had told him that time was passing and the end of summer was near and that his hotel, like his clock, would soon be hers. As I passed, Herr Strauch shuffled out to his front door rather drunk. He did not see me. He was looking at the clock where it hung in the sunset. He looked up at it as the quaking enemies of the Lord must have looked upon the head of Holofernes. I wondered if the poor man would even live another winter. Certainly he had taken his last feeble stand against Frau Lublinich. As for her, she would probably live till she was ninety, perhaps more. The general estimate of her age was fifty-three, fifty-four, five, six, a healthy woman. Next day, the clock was gone. Enough was enough. It had gone back to that glamorous room behind the kitchen to which Frau Lublinich retired in the early hours of the morning to think up her high conceptions, not lying supine like a defeated creature, but propped up on the white pillows, surrounded by her crimson, her scarlet, her gold and rosy tints, which, like a religious discipline, disturbed her spirit out of its sloth. It was here she must have got the inspiration to plant the palm tree and build the shops. When next morning I saw her scouring the pots in the yard and plodding about in her boots among the vegetables, I was somewhat terrified. She could have adorned her person in scarlet and gold. She could have lived in a turreted mansion, rivalling that of the apothecary in the village. But like one averting the evil eye, or like one practising a pure, disinterested art, she had stuck to her brown apron and her boots, and she would, without a doubt, have her reward. She would take the Hotel Straw. She would march on the bridge and beyond it. The café would be hers, the swimming pool, the cinema. All the marketplace would be hers before she died in the scarlet bed under the gold-fringed canopy, facing her ormolu clock, her deed boxes, and her ineffectual bottle of medicine. Almost as if they knew it, the three tourists remaining in the Hotel Straw came over that very afternoon to inquire of Frau Lublinich if there were any rooms available and what her terms were. Her terms were modest, and she found room for two of them. The third left on his motorcycle that night. Everyone likes to be on the winning side. I saw the two new arrivals from the Hotel Straw sitting secure under the Lublinich chestnut trees, taking breakfast next morning. Herr Straw, more sober than before, stood watching the scene from his doorway. I thought, why doesn't he spit on us? He's got nothing to lose. I saw again in my mind's eye the Ormelu clock set high in the sunset. But I had not yet got over my fury with him for spying into my room, and was moved all in one stroke with high contempt and deep pity, feverish triumph and chilly fear. That was Joseph O'Neill reading The Ormolu Clock by Muriel Spark, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 1960 and appears in All the Stories of Muriel Spark, which is published in paperback by New Directions. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Joe, one of the first things that we learn about the guest house Lublanich is that it has this lone palm tree stuck in the middle of the garden, dominating the, the view. It's a small palm tree, but somehow it's still dominating the view over this Austrian mountainside. It's too incongruous not to be symbolic of something or not to stand for something. What, why do you think that palm tree is there? I don't think it's, it's necessary to decode its symbolic significance in a precise way. I do feel though that there's a sort of mist, there's a strong metaphysical or religious dimension to this story. Mm-hmm. And that the incongruous palm tree, which is not a native plant, it's an alien. Mm-hmm. So something otherworldly is afoot on this mountainside. And maybe the palm tree grows out of that otherworldliness. Another image that we get early in the sort of description is is of Frau Lublanich watching as her son brings a bull out, blindfolded or with a bag over its head, takes it to a tree to await the slaughterers. Also a pretty loaded image. Well, I mean, the butcher. There's a lot of blood and butchering at the beginning of the story. And there's a lot of wiping her hands on the apron, Mm -hmm. uh, which also suggests that there's something on her hands. So there's no doubt that Frau Lublinich is both a very successful businesswoman, but also a kind of a force of nature. It's kind of a sort of sign of her domination, in a way, of the empire around her, that everything's sort of waiting for slaughter, including yeah. including Herr Stroh. Everything lives under the butcher's shadow, essentially, and the palm tree shadow, going back mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. So um, this kind of benign but dominating palm tree, the question of butchery, is sort of picked up again at the end of the story mm-hmm. when the reference is made to Holofernes. And now that you bring up the 
religious context of the story, I think, you know, that a palm tree is holy. There's sort of this image of the holy palm. I mean, Palm Sunday is called Palm Sunday in reference to the palm fronds that were scattered in front of Jesus as he made his sort of triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So there's something also triumphant about this image of the palm. I think there is. And I suppose the question I ask is, whose triumph is being celebrated by this palm tree? Mm -hmm. And I suppose it must be hers. Yeah. Frau Lublinich is, we learn, does not go to church. She is above going to church. And so it's almost as if she's this alternative deity. And it's for this reason that I suppose she inspires ultimately fear in our narrator. And the whole story is sort of shot through with these religious references. The clock itself, this mysterious Ormolu clock, is referred to as, as almost like an altarpiece. And her, and Lublin, Frau Lublinich's image of sort of lounging on her bed is compared to a religious dis- an act of religious discipline. Mm-hmm. There's something sort of heathen about her. It's interesting you say that the story is based on something that actually happened to Muriel Spark when she was traveling in the Austrian oh, Alps. Oh, I didn't know that. And she was staying in a guest house, and some fat man with binoculars stared into her hotel window. He wasn't a rival hotelier. But the guest house was run by a woman called Frau Antonich. Right. right. So at the time Spark wrote in the letter of Frau Antonich, she is, in my story I mean, for I have greatly enlarged her, an ambitious pagan, or perhaps not quite pagan, more like one of those terrifying women of the Old Testament, Judith, Miriam, Esther. So she did this very purposefully, obviously. She's mm. sort of pagan, but she's sort of just Old Testament strong woman, you know. And the, the image of Judith, who beheads Holofernes, comes up, and, and we have the clock as the sort of beheading. And it's, I suppose, it, in a way, a beheading of Herr Stroh. Right, and he's he's seen his head up on a spike on the roof of her hotel. Yes. I mean, it's a very weird story in some ways, and it does remind me of Flannery O'Connor because it's almost at the end as if it's Herr Schor who's the hero. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, she despises him and, and sees him as this kind of peeping Tom. But on the other hand, there's something about his humiliation and doom which makes him... A sort of more simpler, sort of less kind of ominous figure than Frau Lublinich. It's unclear almost where our sympathies or our understanding should look should ultimately settle at the end of this story. Now, this this it's hilarious that you read this um, peeping Tom letter. Muriel Spark, as I came to understand when I read this biography of hers by Martin Stannard, which is a great biography, it was somebody who just was constantly getting into these situations. Mm. I mean, she was constantly being sexually molested, stolen from, having peeping toms out staring at her. (laughs) And she saw the world in these terms so that she had a certain kind of paranoia which was rewarded by the way the world seemed to sort of behave in relation to her. There was something about her that provoked this kind of violation of her sense of safety and security because she was absolutely, you know, anxious and, and, and set upon being safe and secure. And she wouldn't actually walk in front of a man walking downstairs because she was afraid that the man would push her down, whichever man it might be. Well, it's the, the plight of the single woman at her time and also a sort of disgraced woman, you know. She's left a marriage and a child, and that makes her a bit of an outcast from society. 
But what I find interesting in the story is it's a story in which the women are strong. The women are, are ruling. One thing that struck me when I read all that New Rules Park is quite how amazingly strong all the women are. Yeah. And the men and by are invariably these risible, contemptible yeah, they, characters. They just sit around on the tables drinking and getting drunk. They sort and of run away with their tails between their legs. Yeah, and they're always sort of leeching off the women and kind of being a pest. And this, I mean, there's no coincidence <laughs> that Herr Stroh, it's called Stroh, S-T-R-O-H, which means straw mm-hmm. in German. So he's a man of straw. And her husband, Frau Lublinich's husband, is quote-unquote of no account. Yeah. And then we don't hear about him anymore. He's just this kind of waste of space. And this, I suppose, you know, rather dismissive attitude towards men that is kind of present in this story is a kind of wonderfully refreshing part of of (laughs) the sort of sparky and oeuvre generally. They're all, all the men are kind of useless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and threatening. They're simultaneously feckless and threatening and dangerous. Well, Herr Straw makes his sort of last stand by picking up his field glasses and staring at the narrator. It's the only way in which he can take some kind of power over this situation, and then it's immediately squelched. Yeah. She is the boss. This question of power is, uh, is so interesting. I mean, in the, I think The Driver's Seat, her novel The Driver's Seat, which I... I read somewhere was also published in its entirety in the New Yorker yes, in 1970, yep. which mm-hmm. is again, mm-hmm. I mean, it still casts, you know, makes me wonder. Why your novels aren't being exactly. published. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we need to talk about this. <laughs> you I, write longer novels. Remember, well, she wrote short novels. Well, I don't, I don't know. You can, we, I'm sure, t- why not have two issues, but um, <laughs> a double issue? But um, it's such a fantastically dark novel. It concerns a woman who's slightly deranged and who goes south somewhere to Italy possibly in order to find a man who will kill her but not rape her but of course that plan misfires that sort of degree of power that the woman wants and eventually she finds a man who's prepared to kill her but he does he also rapes her I'm sorry to have spoiled that novel for everybody (laughs) out there but but it just shows to show how dark and courageous and deep felt her interest in this question of sexual power was which takes us to the bedroom the bedroom yes, in the this strange story, bedroom. this strange bedroom. So here, here we have this Frau Lublonich in her peasant dresses, plucking chickens and scrubbing pots, and then we have this poetic, opulent bedroom. What is that about? I'm sure there's an allusion there, which I'm not understanding or picking up, to a painting. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the bed is, kind of... is, you know, reminds the narrator of. The Van Eyck painting. Yeah, and of course, the Judith beheading of Holofernes is itself the subject of a lot of painting. Yeah. And then we have the tiles on the stove, which are like tiles you see in Byzantine ruins. There's sort of grandeur and references to a kind of temple in this room. And the clock is something that she's acquired by showing her power over Herr Stroh. And mm. one wonders if the rest of the room has been sort of acquired in this way if it's symbolic of her power or if it's actually she just loves to go in this opulent room and lie down on her damask bedspread. And Towards the end of the story, she's described as not lying there like a supine creature. And I suppose the word that jumps out of me there is creature, mm-hmm. which is a sort of in, in sort of theological and sort of religious circles is obviously a big word, signifying, of course, our origins from the creator. So it's almost as if her situation in that bedroom is there's the sort of there's a dimension of divinity to her there there's a sort of way in which she escapes 
her origins as a creature. And there's also obviously a lot of kind of religious stuff going on in that room. There's that sort mm-hmm. of, the stove seems to be very important for some reason, as, uh, which seems like, again, an altarpiece, an altar of some kind. And then, of course, there's the reference to the Byzantine tiles in, to my mind, immediately made me think kind of the only significance of Byzantium really was as the centre of Eastern Christianity. There's a way in which, for me, I would resist scrutinising these details as a reader too closely because there's a kind of mystery mm-hmm. at the centre of this story. And the idea of mystery and inexplicability is central to Sparks' imagination for the simple reason that she finds that our sort of human attempts at explanation are laughable. Our sense of reality is laughable. She doesn't actually believe in realism. And I think she once described herself as a post-rationalist. Well, there's one thing that this image of this room and and also the image of Frau Lublanich sort of surveying her empire from the top of the hill called up for me. I don't know actually really why, but it was it was Ozymandias. And, and the yes. idea of this person surveying an empire and saying, you know, look on my works, you mighty in despair. And the end, what happens to Ozymandias in the end? Well, his works are covered up and he's defaced and broken. And there's a sense in which Spark makes it clear that's what's going to happen. Whether Frau Lublanich builds across the bridge or takes over the cinema or whatever else is going to happen, she's going to end up dying in that opulent bed mm. of hers. And she, she even has a line, you know, facing her ormolu clock, her deed boxes, and her ineffectual bottle of medicine. Mm. No matter what she takes over, it's going to be ineffectual. She's still going to die. And then it will fall apart. So that yes. I, I find there's sort of a, a subcurrent of both her power and her uselessness, ultimately. There's this, there's this sort of limit to the efficacy of her all her efforts which is the limit of death and um and i think that that passage which is almost i think the penultimate paragraph mm. sets us up for this kind of ambiguous ending where the despicable character of straw somehow becomes an object of redemption even mm. though mm-hmm. he has not done anything in this story except suffered defeat humiliation and, 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 as it were, disgraced himself. But there's this kind of slightly epiphanic last line when she has all these feelings at once. She looks at him with chilly fear. Chilly fear. Yeah. And where did that fear come from? Maybe not from him, maybe from her, from Frau Lublinich. There's this, also she has this sort of, model, this sort of motley um, of emotions. Well, I suppose there's a, there's a way in which this clock up there on the roof, it's sort of, it's a symbol of Frau Lublanich's domination over Herr Straub, but it's also just a symbol of time, and time is dominating her as well, you know, and it, it, it actually is dominating everyone yes. under there. And the only clock ticks on, Yeah. Uh, she doesn't. Yeah, and maybe that's the chilly fear that one feels at the end. Which I like, and I call the word dominate. It seems to be the theme of this story. Yeah. Domination, and it probably doesn't matter if Frau Lublanich builds over this guest house. She just really wants to drive him down. It seems personal. Is it personal? I, I don't know. It's hard to tell. I mean, she's a sort of glacier. She's a human mm-hmm. glacier. She will go down to the bridge. She will build down to the bridge and across the bridge if needs be. She will, you know, take over the town. But then obviously, you know, as we find out daily from the newspapers, glaciers eventually melt. <laughs> <laughs> and um, her time, her ice age 
her domination will come to an end. Also, it's worth thinking about the fact that this was written, came out in 1960, was written in 1959, which is you know, 15 years after there were a lot of attempts at domination in Europe. One feels a bit of the history coming in there, this, this idea of overrunning a place. I mean, it's a very interesting part of the world. John Cheever, actually, another great New Yorker writer, often wrote stories with a transalpine dimension. <laughs> my, my sort of vague memories that they're all sort of hanging around in the Alps on some mountain pass waiting to sort of go to Venice or <laughs> somewhere like somewhere more promising. This area, it's one of those mysterious areas. It's the border of Austria and Yugoslavia, a country that no longer exists. Marshal Tito is evoked, mm -hmm. this great Yugoslavian leader whose power, it would seem, even extends to sort of sending weather over. Mm -hmm. Where is he now? He and Ozymandias, of course. Exactly. Where is Yugoslavia? It's all gone. It's almost as if the story knows something that maybe even its writer doesn't know. Thank you so much, Joe. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Deborah. Joseph O'Neill is the author of four novels, including The Dog and Netherland. You can download more than 90 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.